0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Vacuuming? Dishes? Cooking? Which one of these would you love to get rid of from your life? Yes, this week on Download This Show, it has been suggested by some that around 40% of domestic work will be taken up by robots or technology in the next decade. So, what kinds of activities would you like to kiss goodbye to? Plus, virtual reality gaming will it ever be mainstream, and Netflix have raised their prices for many people around the world, but they're actually also lowering it in other countries. The question is why? What is that about? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Uh, On the show this week, we have freelance journalist and the proprietor of the Press Any Button substack, Alice Clark. Welcome back to Download This Show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here.
1: And we also have freelance journalist and the host, co-host, I should say, of the Vertical Hold podcast, Alex Kidman. It's been far too long. Welcome back to the show. Nice to be here, Mark. So who needs virtual reality gaming? This is an eternal question that has kept exactly nobody up except for the people at Sony who have released a brand new VR headset. It's funny with this, Alice, because I remember trying the first PlayStation VR headset many, many years ago, and I remember putting it on just being like, this is cool. I'm going to destroy so much furniture when I put this thing on because I'm just going to wave my hands around. And it feels like I guess from my point of view, like VR gaming has sort of stagnated a little bit, but that could just be my perspective. How do you feel?
0: I feel like we have this problem where the VR headset or VR setup is so expensive that people don't buy it. And then because people don't buy it, they don't make big must-have games to play it on. And then because there aren't must-have games, people don't buy it. Because people don't buy it, the price of doesn't go down because they don't have the economy of scale. And then we go back in the cycle again and again and again.
1: It sounds like, like the circle of life is about to start playing in the background. I've got like is, Elton yes. John going. It could just be me. So you've actually tried, there's a new one, and this is why we're talking about it. There is a new hmm. uh, headset, and you've actually tried it.
0: I have, and it is fantastic. The original one was just kind of made out of spare parts that they had in the (laughs) cupboard. Like, it had the Move controllers from the PlayStation 3. It used the PlayStation Eye camera for tracking. It was like a mobile screen strategy. It was terrible. Like, it was cool, but it was terrible. This new one is amazing. It uses kind of the cutting edge of consumer-grade VR stuff, it's got all-in tracking, so the cameras are attached to the headset, which actually makes you feel a bit less motion sick. It means there's not as much stuff that you can you need to set up. My favourite feature is that it has eye tracking. So, like, in Horizon Call of the Mountain, which is one of my favourite uh, PSVR 2 games, you can navigate through the menus with your eyes and you can kind of aim with your eyes. I don't like as much that the characters will make eye contact with you now, because that's weird. But, the technology has really come a long way. The controllers are good now. I would use these deliberately, unlike the Move, which felt like a weird ripoff of the Wii controller.
2: But the move was a weird whip off, rip off of the Wii controller. That was the controller they built. Yeah, that was a controller they built for the PS3 before they had that first gen PSVR, which really was cobbled together the bits that Sony had sitting in the cupboard.
1: Hmm. So, what would it take, Alex, for you to want to buy a virtual reality gaming? Set?
2: Very, very large bucket to my side because <laughs> I'm in that percentage of the population that becomes extremely nauseated with VR very, very quickly. I had the same reaction and did when 3D movies were a big thing. But the other problem I think that VR's had basically forever has been. The the, the the kind of killer app part of it, because because Alice was talking about it before, that you have this expensive product that only a small number of people buy, so it's less attractive to developers, and that cycle continues. And the way you break that is by having that must-have game, that must-have experience. We've seen this before in PCs and consoles, uh, titles like Doom, titles like Street Fighter II, titles like Grand Theft Auto, which really helped propel not only gaming forward, but actually just sold huge. Huge numbers of hardware. As soon as somebody actually comes up with what that VR experience is going to be, they will rake it in. This might actually be a dumb question, Alice. When a company like Sony is
1: developing a new piece of hardware, like a, a virtual reality headset, is it not sort of incumbent on them to work with developers to make sure that when it launches, there are a handful sort of hit games that are ready to go that that hopefully have a bit of curiosity gap that drives people to buy both game and headset i I just and this might be naive on my part but i just sort of assumed that if you're going to launch a big piece of hardware you would also want to make sure you're partnering with developers to make sure there was stuff that made people want to use said hardware does that happen
0: well it kind of does so they definitely try to do that. With every new console launch They or accessory launch, they have a whole bunch of stuff that comes out with it. And, but there were some really cool games that came out with the PSVR 2. Uh, there's basically 40 games available. But the problem is, is that with a lot of these things, like the console launches, the initial games tend to mostly just be tech demos because the developers haven't worked out how to squeeze all the goodness from the console or accessory. And so they're just kind of going, here's, this is what it does, rather than now saying, okay, we're now used to what it does, let's tell a story.
2: And telling that story is pretty important, I think. But I think the other problem there is currently what they're tr- selling it on or trying to sell it on, are these experiences on, based on existing brands? So lots of gamers will know what Gran Turismo, the driving game, is. They'll know what Horizon is. But... When I'm sat down on my sofa at the point where I'm gonna go, right, well, I wanna play a game, it's a lot easier for me to just grab a controller and go, right, I'm playing on my big TV than, I have to plug this thing in. And I know this one is easier to set up, hmm. but I've still got to plug this thing in. I've got to put it on my head. I've got to hope I don't trip over the cat. Mm-hmm. And, and people— To be are, fair, the cat had it coming. Oh, sure, yeah. sure, sure. He's a jerk. But th- people are fundamentally after lazy entertainment experiences. Mm. They, they, they want to interact the least. And it, it feels funny to me, actually, having watched this field over 30-odd years, it almost feels to me like right now, the killer experience for VR might be exactly what they were trying to push for VR back in the 90s, which is that short arcade experience, that idea that mm. you'd you'd chuck a couple of bucks into a machine at arcades, for those who remember those, because I'm old. And They're coming back. And mm. then you would... Get on with your day. You, you do that socially and it was fine as opposed to dropping, you know, what is it, about $1,500 for PS5 and, and the PSVR all up plus games. A lot easier to chuck a couple of bucks into a machine somewhere. Back in the 90s, of course, they didn't have the hardware to support it, and everything was lawnmower mm. man-esque polygons. <laughs> now things are a lot better but they still, I don't think, have cracked that unique mm. idea. So the argument then is basically
1: it, it makes most sense as a novelty in an environment or and the, the product that we're talking about at the moment, and, and it's certainly not alone, is at its best when it's sort of a bit niche. It's, it's unlikely to, to skip over and become the norm of how people interact with games. Is that, is that Am I interpreting that correctly, Alex?
2: I, I think that's where it's at right now. I mean, I think it's very telling, for example, Microsoft's in a bitter console war with Sony and Microsoft has its own play in this space via HoloLens, which is mm. more augmented reality, but it has not said, hey, here's Xbox HoloLens and doesn't look to be anytime soon. What do you think, Alex? Well, they
0: originally said that they were going to have Xbox HoloLens. That was mm. originally the whole point. I remember that press conference in, was it mm. 2013, 2012? Long while ago. The motion sickness thing is a real issue until the VR industry properly addresses it and properly does some research. Like it's not going to progress any further. It's not going to go mainstream and it's just going to be those bite-sized 10-minute experiences that people are going to go for. I read something ages ago and I have not been able to find any updated statistics. That's roughly one third of men and two thirds of women who get motion sick. And I would be fascinated to know why there is a gender breakdown and how they're defining those things and how they found these people.
1: It's the same thing with reading a phone in a car, which is basically what your eyes are processing mm. and the focal length at which your eyes are processing is different to what your inner ear is processing. Your inner ear says you're moving right now, but your eye's like, no, I'm not. I'm looking at this stationary thing in front of me. And the disconnect between those things is what makes you feel ill. Like,
2: Or vice versa. My understanding on the research by the way, is that the reason why they've identified it more that way is because a lot of the hardware and a lot of the assumptions were built around men.
0: Mm. But the other thing is that for as long as we're making people put on heavy headsets that do not take glasses into account, which Hmm. nerds famously wear, we're just not going to be able to take that extra step. I think the
1: issue with VR gaming, and and it's no disrespect to the technology involved, which is incredibly impressive and significant, right, but I also think it possibly betrays a lack of understanding of the purpose why most people game, which is that it's somewhat, well, not for everybody because obviously it's certainly um, hardcore gamers and people that take it very, very seriously, but there's for a lot of people At its heart, it's a casual activity. And the idea of subtracting your entire experience to get subsumed into a world, has its place, and, and and I guess I spent years as a film critic and I I, I always kind of make it an analogous to the difference between stepping into a cinema and a cinema is a subtraction experience. You remove all the distractions, theoretically, whereas opposed to television, which is like, a I can do it at any time, I can do it from my lounge room. I feel like this is attempting to replicate the subtraction. Not It's not attempting to replicate it. It actually is an enhancement of the cinema experience in that it's a subtraction experience. You're subtracting all of the other distractions. But I just wonder whether that betrays the real reason why lots of people actually game, which is that fundamentally it's casual and it's relaxing, Alex. I could be wrong, though. I've just had my ass handed to me by my eight-year-old on Mario Kart for a couple of weeks now and it's really starting to sting.
2: Well, you probably deserve that. The thing here, though, is that the reasons why people game are really complex. You're right. Some people are absolutely casual gamers. They want to pick something up, blast away at it for a couple of minutes and then get on with their day. We call these people parents because they're time poor. (laughs) Then, But there are plenty of people who do want fully immersive games and the promise mm. of virtual reality for the longest time has been this, you know, to drop into Red Wolf, better than life experience, mm. this whole here's a complete universe s- separated from our own. There's no reason within that as a theoretical construct why you couldn't make an amazing immersive game and something where people went, yes, it is worth the bother putting on the headset, sweating into it, tripping over the cat, whatever the problems may be. But we're not there yet. Cats really copping at this episode, house
0: So some people game to escape their lives. It is the most immersive storytelling medium and also the most immersive weird activity medium. Uh, I remember with PSVR One, one of the most popular games, was, was it Job Simulator or hmm. Office uh, Simulator, where you just yep. walked around and like clicked a stapler and stuff. And
2: badly poured coffee and did ridiculous tasks that a robot gave you.
0: Yeah, whereas now... Do
1: you mean there's people that game for reasons other than being bullied into it by an eight-year-old? I'm shocked
0: (laughs) I know, right? But now, like, the most popular VR game, which is, oddly enough, not available on PSVR 2 yet, is Beat Saber, which is kind of like, what if Guitar Hero was instead wildly flailing your arms is probably the best way to describe it. Isn't that how
1: you do it? It's possible that dropping out of music classes in year four is not serving <laughs> well in this exact moment
2: but beat saber's a lot more like uh, like the jedi training that luke um has at the start of star wars where he's trying mm. to zap that orb mm. you're flailing controllers around trying to slice uh, colored blocks in in tune with the beat it is terribly terribly immersive it's also a great party game simply because watching your friends flail around at stuff you can't see never gets old
0: oh watching people play vr is the best part like When I was doing the PSVR 2 review, I had the flu, and so I would, like, play for 15 minutes and then my inner ear would not take it and I had to lie down in a dark room for a bit. But I got my wife to play it a little bit so I could kind of see how she went. And it was the funniest thing (laughs) I have ever seen. She would just be like, oh, no. Oh, oh, this is too (laughs) stressful. Oh, God, why? Download
1: the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And from the joy of gaming to the absolute banality of household chores. It has been estimated that some 40% of domestic tasks could one day be done by robots. That's within a decade. Do you buy it, Alex Kidman? Do you think that stat stacks up? Or did a robot come up with it just to get themselves a job?
2: Look, I don't know about the robot union, and I really don't want to cross those guys. But I would say no, not necessarily for technological reasons, significantly more so for financial reasons. I think in order to replace 40% of domestic chores, you've got to do that across the spectrum from people in the 1% tax bracket to people all the way down on the poverty line. And the further down you go, the harder it will become to afford these kinds of products.
1: What are the sorts of things that we can do currently with robots and what we sort of looking down the barrel of Alice.
0: So at the moment, robots can kind of vacuum, kind of mop, and if you go to some restaurants, scoop ice cream. So that's fun for them. But this is actually, this is what I want AI, AI for and, like, smart machines to do. At the moment, they're kind of, like, I don't want them to do art for me. I want them to do all of my chores so then I can do art. This is how it's supposed to be. Has anyone seen the
1: Woolies robot? So uh, I think they might be running a trial near my house where they've got a giant robot that's about sort of two metres tall with this weird smiley face and it just goes up and down aisles uh, and it says, I'm here to clean up spills. And my children have become quite obsessed with it. (laughs) They're obsessed with it because I have taken video and shown it to them. But it's like it was probably the first encounter I've had. Like I know people that have the sort of the vacuum robots in the house, but they're never in action when you're there. Right? It's the first time I've been
2: out and about in the wild and been like, oh, robots are here and they're here to stay, Alex. Well, um, I mean, it's funny you should mention that. I wonder if it's using a platform that LG developed, which they've been pushing for years now, and they've had a robot that trundles around the airport in Seoul, greeting people and allowing people to take selfies with it, largely, because it just can't do that much more. But they've had all these kind of concept, larger scale robots for commercial settings. Within the domestic space, I think it's a bit tougher though, because you, you run that line between, at what point is this a robot and at what point is it, is it a machine? I mean. Is my toaster a robot because it's got a a lever arm that pops toast up versus my robot vacuum cleaner, which trundles around trying to vacuum the floor and generally not quite getting there. I guess no, it, it does raise an interesting point, and I
1: think often when we talk about robots it evokes a certain image, and I think obviously that image has been inspired by way too many sci-fi movies and TV shows. But there is a grey area, right? I think we, there's an expectation that robots have some kind of anthropomorphic quality to it, which is actually why the supermarket robot was interesting to me, because they, they literally drew on a, an entirely superfluous smiley face on the front. And they was, nearly
2: always do this when yeah, they want, mm, when they want yeah. robots that are going to face actual people. It's why there's no smiley face on those industrial robots. To make cars. No, and actually that is
1: the thing they should change because I would totally buy a car if I knew it was made by smiling robots.
0: Safety I shoot. had a friend whose job it was to make outfits for ice cream scooping robots. And like they didn't have faces, but they had little hats and little shirts, and I thought that was adorable.
1: Alice, I gotta tell you. I've been broadcasting since i was a teenager and it takes a lot (laughs) for me to be speechless (laughs) but you got me there okay so let's talk about what we actually think is viable and is useful i think i think you raise a really important point alex uh, about the the fact that this is going to be one of those things that like every new development creates even bigger class divides but are there sorts of things that you think uh, we've obviously seen the the influx of uh, vacuum robots adorably adorned ice cream scooping robots, but are there kind of the next generation of robots that are coming through now? What do you think is likely to change our lives in sort of the next five to 10 years?
2: What I'd like to see is advancements in care robots. And there's been hundreds of millions of dollars poured into this. And unfortunately, all the studies so so far have shown that generally speaking, they've actually made life worse, which is a bit of a problem. But it is such a clear area where I think we can do so much with robotics to help people with infirmities, whether that's due to age, whether that's disability, to give them a greater quality of life and to do those repetitive tasks. The things that Alice was talking about, the repetitive tasks where, yes, you can get a carer in to do those, of course, and I'm not talking about a complete removal of human-to-human contact because that's also important, but being able to say, right, well, it's it's 2.30 in the morning and I need this task done the is not there, the robot is, the robot doesn't care, it's 2.30 in the morning, it'll do whatever the task is. I think those kinds of technologies, those kinds of robots in homes are what could lead to the most significant improvements. Over and above, I, I love a robot vacuum cleaner to a certain extent, but for the vast majority of people, it's an indulgent luxury purchase. It's not something you absolutely have to have, except, of course, for those people with limited mobility or whatever,
1: where yeah. actually it is. For you, Alice, what are the sorts of ways in which you think you would both like to see and not like to see robots play a role in domestic life in the next decade.
0: Okay. Well to talk about my dream. <laughs> I know there are so you start talking about hovercars. Like Is this no. where you start talking about hovercars? That's a nightmare. <laughs> I want like I know you can get pressure cookers that will stir risotto and make you a perfect risotto in fifteen minutes. But I want to be able to make my risotto on the stove the old fashioned way and then not have to babysit. So have a stirring robot. I want a robot that can fold my clothes and hang them up on the line. I think that would be nice. As to whether any actually useful domestic robots will be able to take 40% of domestic chores on in the next 10 years, I have been hearing that prediction for about 10 years. I think they're probably about as far away as full self-driving cars that don't run over children and can drive on gravel roads, which is probably never. Like... If they make these kinds of domestic robots that can do these care tasks and these menial tasks, aside from the stuff that they just kind of have to move around, we're going to end up with, A, a privacy nightmare because companies will be like, "Oh, I can harvest all of your data. We're going to get stirring robots that just pour scalding soup all over old people. And we're going to get kids losing their fingers in the joints. Like, we are decades away from this being useful. Even then, probably still a bit of a nightmare. But, like, good luck to them. I, I love their optimism in saying it's 10 years and I hope their VC round goes well.
1: Can I just heartily suggest that you open mm. up a browser somewhere and type in the words automatic pot stirrer? There are <laughs> so many of them. And, I, I like, I will confess I've never thought about this until this exact moment and mm. there are so many of them and they all look like absolute tools of torture, like absolute yeah. tools of torture.
2: Whereas on the clothes folding thing, I think for the, maybe the last 10 years, in fact, I don't think I've been to a CES where someone hasn't been showing off a clothes folding yeah. or steaming robot <laughs> and yet nobody seems to manage to sell one as no. yet. yes we should probably, with the
1: steering robot. We should probably say that CES is the consumer electronics show where every year at the beginning of the year, uh, everybody descends on Las Vegas. I've never been, you guys have, where there's every stupid, stupid, Stupid uh, idea known to humankind is released as a bold new piece of technology and it never takes off. 99.9% of what gets announced at CS dies. I refer you back to the first episode of this year where we talked about the fork that would make food taste better. It's that kind of garbage. Download this show. is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and Netflix, who actually, I think the last time we talked about we talked to them hiking their prices, Alice. Uh, now we're actually looking at a whole bunch of countries around the world where they're actually looking at cutting their
0: prices. Why though? Because Netflix didn't turn a profit when it was popular and now they're losing subscribers and still haven't turned a profit. And they would really like to turn a profit at some point.
2: Weirdly, they're cutting prices in order to make more money,
0: Mm. which which
2: sounds counterintuitive, except that they're cutting their prices in a whole range of countries where they were already... Relative to, for example, Australian prices, quite cheap, but they didn't have large user bases. And they're figuring, well, if we make it a bit cheaper, we can get more people. So even if we're only making a few cents per user, that's better than making nothing or losing money. So the countries we're talking about here are
1: uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, Croatia, Venezuela, Kenya, Iran, not us. right? So I think there's a sense that they've worked at the right price point for Basically, English-speaking countries, I think, is the is is where they've reached what they re- regard as sort of market saturation. But I think it's a bigger issue here, Alice, which is the fact that there has literally never been more competition for Netflix. What is the future like for them? Because when when we're talking about competition, what we're often talking about is major media organisations that have hundred years worth of back catalogue and intellectual property that they're drawing on. Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, HBO is is the world of Warner Brothers, for example. They're now competing with the people that used to supply them. For a company like Netflix, which was so innovative when it started and had all these hit shows, can they survive against companies that now are basically, they've, they've made content for a million years and now they own their relationship with the consumer? Does Netflix have a capacity to compete with that long term? Maybe,
0: as long as the other ones go out of business first because those other streaming services aren't really turning a profit either and they're starting to realise that all the money was in the licensing Um You know how tech bros keep accidentally reinventing the bus? Streaming services have accidentally reinvented the cable
1: bundle? I'm going to need you to go back and explain the bus thing for me. Tech bros have accidentally invented the bus?
0: Multiple times. Like, they just keep saying, oh, but what if we were able to move multiple people at once, but we didn't have to use, like, a rail like a train did? Wouldn't that be helpful? Uh, But premium.
1: Okay, so I, I think that's an interesting point, Right. I think it's probably safe to say they're competing for a, a fine amount of subscribers. For those companies, that is their future, right? Their future is being able to turn their relationship with consumers into something that is funded and paid for.
0: Yeah. Well, the problem is that the reason why Netflix did so well initially was because instead of having to subscribe to a bajillion channels or do a lot of piracy, you could just subscribe to this one streaming service and you had all the shows you wanted and you were fine. And then Disney Plus came in It's was like, well, look, I could have two streaming services. That's fine. And now if you want to, like, there are some shows where if you want to watch the whole thing, you have to go between three different streaming services to get each season. I would never do such a thing. But I have noticed a lot more people talking about piracy recently. And once Gen Z and the millennials rediscover piracy, Netflix and these streaming services are kind of screwed again. It's not good.
2: But it's not good for any of them. Piracy is a problem for all of these content creators. I think the thing with Netflix, and they did recognise this years ago when the bigger studios suddenly realised, oh, hang on, we've given our, our libraries to Netflix for peanuts. We'd better either charge them more or set up our own streaming services. Netflix realised this and started to produce their own content. And I think for Netflix's survival, it comes down to that question of whether or not they can keep making those large-scale hits. I mean, when you talk about HBO, people still refer back to Game of Thrones as their big hit show. For Netflix, it's Stranger Things, undoubtedly, but they've had other bigger shows. They've dipped their toes into all sorts of mediums and, in fact, in spaces that the likes of Disney and so on have not pushed. They they haven't pushed heavily into, for example, uh, Southeast Asian dramas or or horror shows or uh, competition shows, and there's a lot of that on Netflix right at the moment. Mm. A lot of it is really very, very good. But they're also hitting this flexibility point, I think, with a lot of consumers around those Price points, and for Netflix, of course, it's the entire farm; it's all that they do. Whereas Disney, yes, they're losing a lot of money on Disney Plus, but if they just suddenly decided from the CEO upwards to say, no, nope, we're killing that service entirely," they can still make a cajillion dollars out of Marvel, Star Wars, and and Pixar-related, you know, soft toys or whatever.
1: It is, I think, a really important point that the legacy media companies, so your Paramounts and uh, HBO and Disney in particular, the bulk of their business. And, and this is the thing. We, no one really knows streaming numbers except for the people that work there, right? It's, a, I think, a common misnomer. That no, there's no, there's, there's nothing by way of independent audited, audited real numbers. I think what's interesting, though, about the legacy media companies is they are intellectual property that reaches right back into the past. I mean, for Paramount+, Plus, it's it's Star Trek. For uh, HBO, I mean, even then, they've, they've dipped back into the Game of Thrones universe, for example. Hmm. With Netflix, I guess you have to give them credit for the fact that whilst there are certainly things that are built off intellectual property in the past, they have done a lot of things which... A modern American media company would not have commissioned a Squid Game. Once upon a time, you know. What I mean, I think there's something to be said for for being creative with their commissioning and finding new voices. But I guess the question then, Alice, is: Is it enough? And can they keep pivoting and iterating their way into finding new new reasons to keep people subscribed?
0: Well, I think streaming has been fantastic for showing stories of underrepresented people. Like Disney Plus has a movie called Crush, which is basically. The Lesbian 10 Things I Hate About You, which is not something I expected to ever come from Disney, but it's something you have to have on streaming. But I think Netflix, if they can manage to keep enough subscribers, I think they might be fine for at least another decade, and then things will get really dire and they have to make some choices. But I know we don't believe the numbers that Nielsen puts out for Netflix or any of the streaming services, but I am looking at the top 10 original shows from last week in the US, and eight of the top ten and Netflix shows.
1: Well, let's reconvene here in, in, a, in a decade's time and see if it survives. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our panelists this week, Alice Clark, freelance journalist, and if you liked everything that Alice said, you should check out the Press Any Button Substack. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. And if you enjoyed anything Alex Kidman had to say, you should subscribe to the Vertical Hold podcast. Alex, thanks so much for joining us on the program. It's been great to be here. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for joining us on another episode of Download This Show.